0: Welcome to the Disruptor Series Podcast, Adweek's agency podcast of the year. Every episode, we listen to and learn from people who are disrupting business, culture, and life. Here's your host, Rob Schwartz,
1: CEO of TBWA Shy Day New York.
0: Well, thank you for tuning in. Oh, we're in for a treat today because on the show is one of the most creative people on the planet. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Bill Oakley is on the pod. Now, if the name sounds familiar, it's probably because you watched a little animated TV show called The Simpsons, where Bill was a writer and showrunner for many years. He's also written for and developed shows like Futurama, Portlandia, and maybe his best work, Mission Hill. Now, importantly, Bill is currently the creator and host of the Instagram sensation, Bill Oakley's Instagram food reviews. Bill Oakley, welcome to the Disruptor Series podcast.
1: Thank you so much. It is a pleasure, extreme pleasure to be here, Rob.
0: Oh, that's great. I'm so glad you're here. Now, first question. There's a war going on in this country. It's a crispy chicken sandwich war. <laughs> you are in the heart of this war on the front lines. Who is winning the crispy chicken sandwich war?
1: The war... Look, Pop, okay, honestly, just get, I'll get, right to, I'll get right to the point. It's Popeyes. Nobody's ever, ever going to beat Popeyes at this game, period. I would be astonished and be flabbergasted. Everybody else is fighting for second and third. There's simply no way that Popeyes is Popeyes is so well equipped to make these sandwiches and whatever recipes they've been using for years translate wonderfully into sandwiches. Everybody else is, is fighting for second. And my, current belief is that mcdonald's and chick-fil-a are tied for second mcdonald's did a magnificent job with their new sandwiches that came out uh, last month and they basically are extremely similar to chick-fil-a and they're far more accessible for many of us and then you have people like you have kfc and then you get to regional chains like zaxby's and churches which i haven't tried because we don't have them here but i'm hearing great reports from around the country but honestly Popeye's has won. If you have a Popeye's near you, there's no point in going anywhere else. But Chick-fil-A is great and McDonald's ties. If you have, and it's far more convenient for most people.
0: Love it. Now, I, I was, you know, when we were thinking about, you know, having you on and thinking about your disruption and stuff. You know, one thing is that you've disrupted your career. And we can talk about that later, you know, on the show. But I think that there's a interesting disruption here in that you are an authentic, earnest, and I would argue sometimes quite erudite food critic, but a food critic of fast food. And that seems like kind of a a brilliant disruption. So maybe talk a little bit about your idea and how it all came about.
1: Yeah, well, thank you for the high praise. First of all, I should say, This doesn't pay anything. It's not a job. It's a hobby. Okay. So that I still have my job as a TV writer, which we'll get into shortly. And I do this for fun. And I also get a lot of free stuff, which is exciting. Not just from companies, small companies, big companies, and just people from all over the world. There's no video on this podcast, but behind me, you will see at least 75 different items I have yet to try that literally came from all over the world that people have sent me. So that's kind of what it is. I should also say there's a bifurcation of my criticism on my Instagram. I basically only review nationally available fast food items on my videos, on my mag- my regular feed, but on my Instagram story I review all sorts of stuff. And a lot of it is, as I said, snack food that people send me from all over the world. It's also a lot of local things in Portland I support all of our local businesses and food carts and things at least once or twice a week, I try to, and also other stuff that people send me. And this is where I get, that's where I get the most stuff from smaller food companies, hot sauce companies, things like that. I just got a, a shipment of oysters, air cargoed from an oyster farm in Alaska, which was, that was terrific. So, and I'll be posting that soon in any case. So how did this start? I've always had strong opinions about fast food. I've always been into it because i was so deprived of it as a kid when i was a child this was in the era when mcdonald's was constantly advertising to kids but the nearest one was 60 or 70 miles away Mm. because i lived in the country and so i my for my birthday i get my parents to drive me to baltimore or washington dc to go to mcdonald's and that continued to be the case actually pretty much till i was in my 20s and i could drive because i would never live near one like that or or any fast food places Uh, and there weren't quite so many in existence either so I've always been interested in it. I've always been the type of person who rushes out to get the new item at whatever fast food chain it is. And usually I would just express my opinions to my family who weren't interested in hearing the opinion or <laughs> to people on Twitter and basically in text form. And about two and a half years ago, I decided just to migrate from text, typing up criticism to video criticism. And I don't remember what precipitated that other than that. I I just had a lot of things to say about the McDonald's fresh beef quarter pounder. So I filmed myself talking about it. And immediately the very first day that I posted it, both McDonald's corporation and the head chef at McDonald's commented on it and said like, congratulations on your new career as a food blogger and influencer. And I was like, okay, that's it. I love this. (laughs) And (laughs) now 150 reviews later, and I have achieved some prominence in this field.
0: No, it's great. I think, you know, for those who don't know the show, you, you really should go to Instagram to see it. I mean, it's, it's very well done. And I think what's great is that you put the right amount of craft for a 59 to 60 second piece with the right amount of content and the right amount of charm. I mean, the recipe for how you're doing it on Instagram, I think it's terrific.
1: Well, thank you. It definitely evolved over time. Like when I did my first video, I literally didn't know how to string three shots together. Hmm. And I kind of, I realized there was something already on the iPhone, iMovie. Well, I would do that, but it took me hours to do it, to string three shots together. And now I would say I'm an expert in using iMovie, but I've also decided that like, that's the cap. I'm not gonna, if it's too difficult to do on my phone, it's too difficult for this show. Hmm. So, um, but a lot of things are, the phone is able to do a lot of things these days. And I try to pack as much entertainment into the 59 seconds as possible as well as the criticism of the food.
0: Good. Uh, you know, I think, uh, again, there's a, there's a lot of stuff to talk about about your process, but maybe let's talk a little bit about some of the other features of the show. I mean, there, there's base, there's the episodes where you review a new item, which are great. And then you've also got your menu hacks. Those are new. Maybe talk a little bit about the, the menu hacks.
1: Those actually almost always come from viewers, and people say, you got to try the Big Mac with four tomatoes, for instance. And I was like, okay, I'll try it. And it was magnificent. So that's actually just a new thing I started to do. And honestly, it was just to experiment with Instagram Reels. Because mm. they've introduced Reels, and they're trying to force it on everyone's throat on Instagram. And because of that, I read that they promote it more when you post a Reel. And it's oh. true. My Reel got twice as many views as my biggest review ever and so like they push it whatever the algorithm pushes it forward so I was like I'm going to keep doing these and they're also a little bit easier to do than the other reviews
0: hmm. and then tell the folks about the steamies the steamy awards
1: that was an invention basically at the end of the year of my first year of doing this I kind of wanted to sum up the year and say what the best items I had were and I think it just pretty naturally, segue into what about an award show? I mean that's how they do it in Hollywood. Like and, and I could do an award show and I could it's basically sort of a parody of a 70s or 80s award show. And again, this episodes are only 59 seconds long. So it's blessedly short compared to most award shows. And so I decided I was going to have 10 categories of things like best new fast food item, best frozen pizza, you know, best foreign snack food, things of that nature, and get celebrity presenters. And I roped in some of my friends from various fields to do that. And since then we've had three years of the Steamies and they've gotten more and more prominent and I've gotten more and more famous people to present the awards. This year I had Jake Tapper from CNN and his son present the uh, fast food item of the year. And I had Robin Lopez from the NBA and I had a number of people from different fields. And, you know, Thesis Nice has been on since day one. And it's an exciting kind of thing now. It's become tradition. It's always like the second week of December. And it allows me also to sort of sort through the year, get it all nailed down and put it behind me.
0: And, then, and by the way, for, for again, for folks who haven't seen it impressively enough, Bill does don a tuxedo. Mm.
1: So impressive. Yeah. <laughs> um,
0: what uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, your most popular, what, what's been your most popular show?
1: Popeye's chicken sandwich. <laughs> it was the thing is, this is what I discovered about this particular field. There's only so many people who turn in for the entertainment and humor. If it's a, if people are interested in the I, most people, especially people who are not like hardcore followers of my feed are interested in the new food item. So when it's a new food item that is generating buzz, those always get the most views. And that one by far eclipsed every other number in terms of views. And I should also say, by the way, that I think I'm the only one doing this on Instagram, which is one of the reasons I picked Instagram. There are other people doing it on YouTube, including the people who invented this whole genre, like Dame Drops and Report of the Week, who have a million followers on YouTube. I mean, like, that's a whole different thing. And I don't even try to compete in that genre or even in the podcast genre, which the doughboys have totally nailed down and taken over. They're the kings of fast food, basically. So I've decided to just stick to Instagram. Because part of what I like about Instagram is its fake glamour. I think that Instagram is put forward as like, but I think they called it a, somebody called it a wall a garden or something. It's like it's got all this stuff. First of all, it's got a lot of tools to keep people from harassing you, which Twitter does not have. It's also got this sheen of glamour, and like people and Instagram influencers get invited to the fire festival. In fact, that was one of the reasons I started this. I was like. God damn it! I'm going to be invited to the next fire festival. I know it sucked, but I want to get invited. And so I was like, I'm going to become an Instagram. I'm never going to be a fashion influencer, but I do have one 4K. So that's kind of why I do this, and I do it only on Instagram. Although I sometimes mention the videos mm. on, on Twitter, because I like the um, <laughs> I like the sheen, the patina of glamour that Instagram gives it.
0: No, very very good. And I, and I think you know one of the things we're seeing, you know, in in our business is this kind of platform expertise. You know, there there are just certain people, they're very good at Instagram, and they're not interested in Twitch or Reddit or, you know, Clubhouse, you know, whatever else is coming. So I think you're onto something with being kind of unique to Instagram.
1: It's interesting. I mean, I haven't gotten to the ranks, the high up ranks where Instagram contacts me. But that's where it's – I actually – this is one of the few times I've had a useful experience on Clubhouse. I, I attended a thing on Clubhouse that was Instagram influencers talking about stuff. And there are a lot of things, like there's a lot of secrets to getting the algorithm to push you forward, Mm. including that thing about the reels, which is why I I did that. But also people who are of a higher caliber than me, Instagram contacts them and says, basically gives them the keys and says, if you post X number of things per week on your story and X number of things this way, the algorithm will push it forward. Mm. And they're like these techniques. I wish I could learn them. Maybe someday someone from Instagram will call me and say, if you do here's the secret to getting it promoted.
0: By the way, I feel like there's, you know, a Simpsons episode that I, that is maybe undiscovered of the algorithm God that everyone has to please. I mean, this is yeah. <laughs> nuts. So what uh, what do you think has been your favorite product, ex-Popeye's chicken? Because I have a theory on, on what it is, but you tell me what, what you, what, what's been your favorite product you've reviewed?
1: Damn, it's tricky because it's hard to say, once you get into different types of fast food, like it's comparing apples and oranges. I mean, not, not literally, like <laughs> quite honestly, the most widely available thing that I would have every day of the week, it would be the McDonald's fresh beef quarter pounder deluxe, which is that, which is the very first thing I reviewed as a matter of fact, because I lo- I think those are, they're easily as good as a Shake Shack type thing, or at least the Shake Shacks vary so widely in its quality all over the country, but like thing it's very consistent and it's delicious. But then there's a ton of specialty things that I love, like the Arby's fish sandwich. That was the Arby's fish sandwich. I tried. I didn't even think it was going to be any good. I didn't film the review. I was just driving along. And (laughs) I loved it so much. I've been talking about it relentlessly. And Arby's actually did see it. And they sent me all this stuff, including this crazy Arby's hat and this uh, gym suit that has like pictures of meat on it and stuff. It was very nice of them.
0: By the way, how did you compare the Arby's fish sandwich to the Arby's duck sandwich that you
1: reviewed? <laughs> I didn't love the duck sandwich. I mean, I liked it okay. It that was amazing know, like, the that, that taste you found it. Duck. it uh, that was a perk of living in this weird region because they only served it at 12 places, apparently places where ducks are readily available. And this was one of them. They also did it with deer, by the way, with venison, like the next year. So I got to have both of those. And I just don't really love the taste of duck. And I don't love the taste of venison, but it was nice of them to try. And I liked their preparation of it.
0: <laughs> my, my thought for you on your on, the, on the favorite, again, watching you and watching the things that you love, I thought you were going to say McDLT. I mean, you, you really sold me on the power of the McDLT.
1: Well, here's the thing. The Fresh Beef Quarter Pounder Deluxe is the modern McDLT. It's exactly the same thing, except it doesn't come in that weird novelty styrofoam two part thing. And I did like that because I really do like the idea of the hot keeping the hot side hot and the cold side cold. And a lot of people don't agree with me on this. I like the cheese to be kind of cold. And that was McDLT had that was the magic of the McDLT. So yes, if I could have the modern quarter pounder deluxe prepared in that fashion and served in that styrofoam environmentally unfriendly container, that would be it. You're right.
0: Very good, and uh, you were impressed, but not that impressed with the fiftieth anniversary show, the Beverly Hills Burger, the Wagyu Burger.
1: Yes, uh, <laughs> I tend to like burgers that are a little more blue collar, I guess I would say. Um, that I mean, I, I appreciate that burger, but you know, it, I think it was fifty bucks or whatever, and it was not. <laughs> I don't think it quite lived up to the price. The surroundings were lovely.
0: And do the brands, you said uh, the the brands are contacting you. I mean, maybe talk a little bit about what kind of relationship you're developing with the brands.
1: Boy, this is a whole, I could do a whole podcast just on this particular aspect of it. It's very interesting. And the whole, I'm sure that your listeners already know about the whole weird world of influencer marketing. And again, I don't think the food universe is nearly as big as the fashion universe or things like that, or the, the cosmetics universe in terms of influencers. But there is a thing. There's a whole thing in existence of people who post, basically, I would say people who post uncritical photos of stuff that companies send them. And those people have hundreds of thousands of followers too. They're mm. big accounts that's like here are the new things that here's the new flavor of Frosted Flakes that they sent me and they sent it to them. So I've gotten on a couple of those things, but I know that because I'm sometimes critical, I try to keep my journalistic integrity intact. <laughs> so I don't get a lot of that stuff. I get some of it and Generally, that stuff comes from companies like my St. Patrick's Day, Tullamore Dew Whiskey sent me this thing yesterday to make a whiskey shamrock shakes and stuff like that. And I love that kind of stuff. So that's one. Again, that goes that's the story stuff in terms of the fast food brands. I have a very mixed relationship with them. McDonald's has been nothing but lovely, but they don't – I'd say they rarely send me stuff in advance, which is good because that I don't want to be influenced. They like it when I review their stuff well, and they sometimes send me like, hey, Bill, we loved your thing. Here's our new Big Mac calendar or whatever. And in fact, I also heard from a source inside the corporate headquarters that they were – eagerly awaiting my review of those chicken sandwiches and that it was, and since it was positive, it was immediately circulated amongst all the highest executives. And then apparently to the entire nationwide McDonald's organization. So that's thrilling. And they never tell me that stuff, but somebody, I have a source now inside other places like Taco Bell never interacted with me once ever. Ever of any kind. Wendy's interacted with me for the very first time just two weeks ago, and was like, because someone I was in a conversation on Twitter about their um, chicken sandwich or something, and they sent me a gift card to go try it. But it wasn't like they rolled out the red carpet like Arby's did. <laughs> and again, most of this stuff comes after the fact.
0: Oh, interesting, cool. Well, you have an illustrious career above and beyond this amazing food critic career. So I think you know people like to hear people's journeys. So maybe talk to us a little bit about how you got here, starting about you know, rolling it back to when you were a kid hanging out with Josh Weinstein and thinking about stuff.
1: Yeah. uh, It's been a long, long journey. (laughs) And I, um, as I said, I grew up in the country. This was back in the era when there was not a lot of stuff on TV for like, there's only three channels and there was no kid stuff most of the day. So What was I to do to document myself, but read all these old mad magazines that my brother left in the attic from the 60s. And I read every single issue of mad from like 19, it was from 1959 to 1970, over and over and over again. And that's how I learned to read. And it also kind of shaped my sense of humor and my desire to be a cartoonist. And then in college, I was on the Harvard Lampoon. I was got on as a cartoonist. I transitioned into being a writer, and I was still working with my friend Josh Weinstein, who was at Stanford, and we were best friends in high school. We started a humor magazine in high school, and that was kind of our claim to fame. And after college, we decided we wanted to go into TV writing. And we had about four years of struggling with no success until we finally wrote a a new sample script for Seinfeld back when it was a new show that got us a lot of meetings and finally an offer to write an episode of The Simpsons. They liked our episode of The Simpsons. They hired us, and we worked our way up the ladder to running the show. And we ran it for a couple of years. After that, we created our own show, Mission Hill, which you're familiar with. And that was short-lived. And then we went on to a number of different projects, including working on Futurama and a lot of different development. Like, as everyone knows, development is what you do. 90% of, 99% of stuff that's written in Hollywood never gets made. But you can make a fair, a fairly <laughs> good living writing stuff, pilots. And so we had a lot of pilots. We've written a lot of pilots and a lot of, had a few other short-lived shows. And then about 12 years ago, I moved to Portland. For you know, change of lifestyle and having my third kid. And I've done a lot of different types of stuff, working on a lot of different shows. And currently, I and actually, and also the pandemic, I should say, has changed a lot of everyone's lives, obviously. In my case, it used to be that I was a total freak for living in Portland and in LA, they would be like, We're gonna have to pay for him to fly down here. No way. And like that was it. And it's we're not gonna offer him a job that people fucking hate playing for travel. And they really do. Oh, and yeah. like, even though it's gonna be a $129 ticket for me to go from here to Burbank, they're like, Forget it. <laughs> we're not gonna do it and, and they're not we're not gonna hire him. But since the pandemic started and all the writers' rooms have become Zoom, it doesn't matter where you live. So I've been actually working nonstop since last March. And I recently was hired to be the executive producer and head writer of Close Enough on HBO Max,
0: Terrific. which I had
1: worked on a few years ago as well. So I do continue to have my full-time TV writing job.
0: Terrific. Thank you for that. That's great. Maybe a couple points to make. One is Al Jaffe. That name might sound familiar from Mad Magazine. You're only just turned a hundred years old.
1: I saw that. That's incredible. Pretty that amazing. is. Uh, his also that that he's still working and at uh, such a high caliber. After all, you know, eighty straight years of working as a cartoonist, <laughs> it's incredible. I believe he just kind of got a Guinness broke world records for longest career in comic industry. I believe.
0: Wow, that's incredible. So, so Mad Magazine was a big influence, and then. Of course, Harvard Lampoon. Were you a National Lampoon person, too? Was that part of your diet? I
1: worked briefly on National Lampoon, but it was already in its state of collapse at that point, and none of the issues ever came out. Josh and I both worked there after college, and this was right kind of the point where it had disintegrated and was being sold over and over to various shady People. It's an interesting story, by the way, the, the collapse of National Lampoon. You, there's a Vanity Fair article about three years ago, which I recommend everybody read because like three of the owners are in jail. Oh my now, God. Three, cons- three consecutive owners of National Lampoon are in jail because I think it appealed to a certain type of somewhat shady speedboat owner type dude. <laughs> and they uh, many of them wound up in prison.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's interesting because it launched so many careers.
1: Yeah. you know, It was the uh, thing.
0: Amazing. I remember as a kid, I mean, I was obsessed with National Lampoon. I mean, Me that's, that's all I wanted to do, you know, be the next PJ O'Rourke. And, you know, and uh, it's nuts. Yeah, I
1: completely agree. That's the same thing that I wanted. But by the time I graduated from college, it was already virtually dead and the TV was a successor.
0: Yeah, there was something about television, I guess, in the mid to late 80s that was kind of like what NFTs and SPACs are today.
1: That you know, and i'm I don't even know I know what you're talking about, but I don't understand it.
0: This <laughs> whole sort of you know uh, you know crypto thing, you know everyone going to these uh, new forms of uh, of money, just just nuts. Now, you talked a little bit about these virtual writers' rooms. I mean, maybe talk a little bit about the dynamic. I remember you know you and I worked together. You were very kind to hire uh, my partner, Rich Siegel, and I to work on your show for a couple episodes. And, you know, I remember being in the writer's room with you guys, and it was just so intimidating. I mean, it was just this room full of really brilliant people. And, you know, it was just, we didn't know how we were going to kind of work our way in. And eventually, you know, you guys made it very welcoming and it was, and it was terrific. But I wondered, does the dynamic change? Because one thing that I've noticed is that we've sort of democratized opinion on screen. Like when I'm in meetings now, I feel like a lot of junior people are just, everyone's just kind of talking. It's no, the intimidation factor seems to have subsided. So I don't know, maybe talk a little bit about the virtual writer's room versus the regular writer's room.
1: That's an interesting observation that you make. I don't know that my experience bears that out, but it is, I think the part of the thing is it's about 80% as good, which is adequate. Mm. (laughs) You know, like the thing about an actual writer's room is that you can use your physicality to sell your joke and to make your point and things like that, which you cannot do. And I did miss that, especially when I was working on Disenchantment on Netflix a couple of years ago. And I was the only person who was telecommuting. So it was hard for me to get a worded edgewise amongst the people in the actual writer's room. Now that doesn't happen because everybody's on the thing. I think that it's, uh, it, it's, I'd say it's, it's, and again, it's 80% as good. Mm-hmm. It has its uses, but it's also, I prefer, and Josh, even back in the days of Mission Hill, the writers' room is not the end all and be all because a lot of the best work is done by people working on their own so even on mission hill we had kind of a 50 50 thing where we would talk about the stories in the room and we talk about other larger issues but a lot of the small things we would just have people write on their own and we'd say you know come up with five funny signs for this deli and people would do it and we'd pick them and like they'd be just as good as the room and it would also be so much People like being able to work on their own. Like the room is also can be a prison, you know, Mm. and you're there with the same people all day long, every day. And there's so much time wasted. That's one of the things both Josh and I determined that, and it's actually a good thing on Zoom. There's not as much time wasted on Zoom, I find, Mm. because Mm. there's not as much opportunity for small talk or for people to sit and look at their phones and fart around because it's more like, let's get in and do the work and then return to our lives. That's at least my opinion about the way things work on Zoom. I'm sure there's other experiences.
0: Well, I think one thing I observed, which I think was really interesting for the creative process in general, whether you're writing television or, or, or advertising, is what you say, you know, you test us with coming up with the script. It was kind of beaten around and stuff in the writer's room. And then you and Josh kind of went away absorbing everything. And then you came back with a finished product and it was like, wow, this is amazing. You know, and we may have had a few kernels, but you guys seem to figure out from the original to what you heard in the room to what should have been the thing it was kind of a powerful process
1: it, i mean it came from years of, obviously we learned all that kind of stuff on the simpsons and it, it was a process that was probably i know that it was probably it, we got learned it from my canal mike and Al, gene heard it from sam simon and he probably learned it and he learned it from jim brooks and it probably goes back to the mm. days of radio you know the way that the things operate but it, it has evolved as you say because we don't have The Simpsons was there was a room running all day long every day. And as my opinion has evolved, I think that's a waste of time. Hmm. Like, and this is the thing I will say, uh, this applies to a lot of people using Zoom these days. I've had this conversation with multiple writers. It used to be that, like, if you have to drive an hour and a half to go to a meeting, Hmm. the person feels obligated to sit there with you for half an hour. (laughs) You know, and and now you don't need that. You can have a five minute meeting and be done with it because there's this thing. And also, like, if you can think about if you had to commute from Santa Monica to Burbank to sit in the writer's room and it took you 75 minutes to get there, you're not going to go home after an hour. You're going to put in the day. And Mm -hmm. now, so there's not, there's no need, there's not so much inertia. There's not so much need to sit there all day because of your sunk time costs, you know. Right. And I do like this a lot. I meet with writers individually during the day. We have the room for a couple of hours, and it works a lot better. And there's so much less wasted time. And there's also the commute. The fact that at least living in LA, you got two extra hours to work or to live your life without having to commute to this place and then sit in the room.
0: Amazing. Uh, one last point on on jokes because I, I think I don't know how you're doing it. How can you write jokes in 2021? I feel like. Every word is scrutinized and measured and, you know, it just seems impossible to be funny. Yet you're funny, you know, on your Instagram, uh, you know, food critic show. How is this possible?
1: Well, you know, those things, they all operate in their own context. There's a difference between being funny and telling jokes like Jay Leno in a monologue or Jimmy Fallon, as opposed to being funny in a context like... The show that I'm head writer of now, like the comedy comes from the characters in general. So the characters are not like I know that there's a lot of unfunny stuff in existence. But number one, we're not doing any politics. You know, politics, it's really hard to be funny about politics. John Oliver is the only one who's succeeding, I think, these days. And it's just like I don't even want to talk about politics or hear about it. So stay out of that field, for one. And then I know that there's a minefield of other things. But like the stuff that all the stuff I'm working on, we're not treading into areas that are unfunny. You know, I think for my food thing, it's the inherent absurdity of doing this is part of the joke, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and that's part of what's and funny, like that, what I did two weeks ago with the New York Times parody with the journalistic integrity thing, yes, and the podcast yeah. music. A part of that is it's a very rich field from which to draw, and I don't have to tread into sensitive areas.
0: Mm. Now, before uh, we wind up and you give us a piece of advice, maybe talk to us a little bit about your next venture. I saw that uh, you've got a Kickstarter for this company, Sight Gags, and I must say this: this is the, one of the funniest things I've seen. You have a new product for the least popular advertising characters of 1962.
1: Thank you. I'm excited about this. And by the way, there's only if you're going to get one, you only got 72 hours left because this thing, the Kickstarter, expires on Sunday afternoon. Um, <clears throat> So uh, anybody who hears this uh, you may have already missed your chance but if but I'll, you know what I am happy to gouge you on eBay cuz I'm buying a few extra ones <laughs> and I'm going to put them on eBay I'm going to sell them for a fortune when people come back crawling back people who didn't buy one are going to be like oh how am I going to get one of those well here you go it's going to be marked up 7000% though so anyway this is a funny it's a funny vinyl toy company you know for people who are uninitiated which turns out to be a lot of people there's a whole world of vinyl toys and i don't mean vinyl toys that little kids play with i mean collectible vinyl toys the low end of the spectrum will be Funko pops which i think everybody knows by now but there's a high end of the spectrum companies like kid robot for example mm, make mm. these collectible things and they're they're not so much toys that you play with they're toys you put on a shelf and admire and they're always cost over a hundred dollars and there's a whole aftermarket of things that thousands of dollars for some of these so i was like this came from my desire to make something make basically wacky packages i don't most people don't remember wacky packages, love it, that love it. was my favorite thing as a little kid yeah. and they still they still make them they still have they've been making them for decades but there's not people don't notice them so much back then they were one of the only funny things that existed like that in mad magazine so i was like how could i make objects that are funny and i was like wait i think we were actually driving to go to the funko pop store when i came up with this idea and i was like how about funny objects oh my god what if i parodied if i did parodies of commercial mascots at least for my first one and that's what it was because i have a whole bunch of like you know old Count Chocula figures and things like that from the 70s. And so I decided it's going to be like Wacky Packages. There's going to be a series. The premise of the series is least popular advertising characters in 1962. I made up <laughs> A couple dozen of them, some of which are funny to look at, some of which have funny names, and and the good ones have both. I did some rough drawings. I hired some artists to make them far more professional, and some graphic designers, and we're manufacturing them. So we put the first. It took it's been three years getting this to this stage, and I have an assistant who helps me work with the um, factories in China, the manufacturing places. We got the place that we got the actual place that makes the best ones in existence already. So I'm thrilled to be in business with them, and we put it up on Kickstarter. Now these things are expensive too because they're not like we're only making like a hundred. And if we're making 25,000, they'd be 30 bucks a piece, but we're only making a hundred. And so they're a hundred bucks a piece. They cost us 90 to make and we're selling them for a hundred. So, but I hopefully over time, as these come out, these things will get more popular. We can lower the price. We can start selling them in retail locations, but right now you can only buy them on this Kickstarter.
0: That's amazing. And, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to post a fun picture of you, uh, showing them. And and I, people should just look at the the film you made is great for psychic. So, uh, it, it's, oh, re- it's really good. Really, really I
1: should good. say. By the way, that I didn't, I didn't. We didn't even get to the character. The first one we're selling is this character called Sneaker Sniffer, who was a mascot for a foot powder company. If you don't use our foot powder, you're gonna get a visit from the sneaker sniffer, who's kind of a lovable monster. He looks a little bit like Dino from the Flintstones who will hide in your closet and sniff your shoes, but it has an uncomfortable sexual context because he looks like he's having an orgasm as he sniffs the shoe. And that's why this was one of the least popular characters, presumably. It also comes when you buy it with a full-size ad that was ostensibly in Life Magazine, depicting this this concept.
0: Love it, sight gags, This, this is really good. Well, Bill, we're at the part of the show where you're going to drop some wisdom on somebody because you didn't disappoint. You, you do so many cool, creative things. So let's go back to fast food. And why don't you give us a piece of advice for a CMO of a fast food company or you know, a rising marketing star in a food company? What should they be doing next?
1: I think this is the thing that I would say to summarize it. Make sure the food is up to the hype, please. That's the difficult thing. And I know this I don't know if this is a useful piece of advice because it's hard. Like they, I suspect a lot of the people who are writing these ads and putting these things in, have never even tried these items. You know it's like it, 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 when there's, this is what what I'd say to me is the most laughable is when there's a huge amount of hype and the item stinks. And it happens over and over and over again, especially when there's a lot of really hip commercials that are super cool for this new item. And then you go out and try it and (laughs) and it stinks. Those always, that makes my most popular reviews, really. I mean, like, or at least my most humorous reviews is when there's a vast chasm between the advertising and the item. And I think it's probably because there's such, they probably never met each other, the people who wrote the ads and the people who created the item. And that's like, to me, and the thing about it is it's also It's amazing when the item lives up to the hype, boom, Popeye's fried chicken is maybe the only one that totally did it for in the past 20 years.
0: Well, that is a word to the wise when the item is up to the hype. Well, I think you certainly up to the hype of this show. So thank you so much.
1: (laughs) Thank you uh,
0: for being here and just sharing all your cool stuff. You know, I I could talk to you all day, but again, I, I can't thank you enough for being here.
1: It's my pleasure. You asked a lot of great questions and allowed me to be a total motor mouth throughout this entire thing.
0: Thank you for listening to the Disruptor Series podcast, Adweek's agency podcast of the year. Craving more disruption? Visit us at tbwashydayny.com.